Having uh, surveyed that grand, really grand, enthralling scene in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, which I hope you had an opportunity to look at this week, where we saw God the Creator and the slain, slaughtered, and yet standing Lamb, the one who's worthy to open the sealed book, they were together, God and the Lamb, hymned by every creature in heaven and on earth. And after having seen that scene and been lifted up into it, chapter 6 in the book of Revelation may come as something of a shock. We find that the exaltation of the Lamb, the heavenly temple liturgy, while they anticipate the coming worship of all creation, we saw that, that scene anticipates the coming worship of all creation. In the meantime... That same liturgy leads to, and indeed it unleashes, this series of judgments, beginning in Revelation chapter 6, into the earth. And so we'll look at this text under three headings, the four horsemen, the martyrs, and the earthquake. The four horsemen, the martyrs, and the earthquake. Now, by way of introduction, first the, the four horsemen, by, by way of introduction, let's note an important kind of structural feature of the book of Revelation. There are seven seals, followed later by seven trumpets, followed finally by seven bowls of wrath. Now, they start in chapter 6. Basically, that's chapter 6 through 16 of the book. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Now, Revelation to this point is really a fairly accessible book. It's letters to churches, and then two chapters of the worship of God in the heavenly places, chapter 4 and 5. It's here where people start to get tangled up and disagree with one another and have all sorts of ideas about what the text is saying. It's chapter 6 where, if you will... Um, the battle of different interpretations and imaginary scenes takes place. So you've got these three sets of seals, trumpets, bowls. All three sets of seven are depicting the same basic thing. They're depicting history from the time of the, the, that John is writing until the end, until the coming of the Lord Jesus. They're not merely repetitions. They loop back. They cover the same ground, only with more intensity. So the seals run you from now to the end. Then John loops back, and he goes through the trumpets, and he tells the same story, only he ratchets up the intensity. And then he does it again with the bowls with even greater intensity. So there are parallels, but there's a sort of progression of intensity. And that covers the middle section of the book. That's what's going on. It's always important to keep that big picture in mind. Now, if that seems confusing, try and remember it this way. The seals and the trumpets are partial judgments. They're provisional judgments. The bowls are total judgments. In the seals, which we're beginning to look at today, a quarter of the earth is judged. In the trumpets, a third of the earth is judged. In the bowls, the whole earth is judged. So that's what John is doing from 6 through 16. 
He's running you through this his, historical sequence of judgments. He runs you right up to the end. Then he backs off. He does it again. And then he backs off and he does it again. The third time, it's final. So with that, we'll take a look at the first set of uh, partial judgments which characterize history from the Lamb's enthronement until his coming in glory. All four of these seals are opened by the Lamb. Right? We saw that last week. He's the one worthy to open the book. And in each case, one of the four living creatures summons with the word come, the horse. And it's clear throughout that the destructive authority of the riders, the destructive authority these horses possess, is given, the text says, or granted to them. And so the point is that the lamb surrounded by his heavenly court, is sovereign over these judgments. The riders on these horses are clearly demonic. They're evil. But nonetheless, the Lamb remains sovereign. He orchestrates even the calamities of history for the sake of his people. And so, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, John, he's still in heaven. He watches while the Lamb opens the first seal. He hears one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. John looks, he sees a white horse. Its rider has a bow and a crown was given. Notice a crown is given, authorized is this rider. He comes out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Some see this horse as Christ, or the rider of the horse as Christ, The main reason for this is that Christ does come forth to conquer on a white horse in chapter 19 of the book. But there are serious problems with seeing this particular horse as Christ. First of all, the lamb is breaking the seals. It's unlikely that he's also the rider. And secondly, the the horses here, there's four horses, they belong together. They're a group. We'll see this much later in Revelation But the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, they all have a four plus three pattern. The first four belong together. The second three do different work. And it's clear here the second, third, and fourth horses are evil. So the horse is not Christ. White white horses were, in the Roman Empire, associated with military victory and with war. And so what we have here is a parody of Christ. A parody of Christ the Conqueror in the armies of the empire. In other words, and empires generally, by the way. In other words, the armies of the earth, the great armies of nation, states, and empires are in a sense here depicted as parodies of Christ's way of conquest and conquering. So the horse and the rider here represent this human lust for domination which Augustine speaks of at great length in his City of God. The unquenchable thirst of total states for conquest and for expansion. And the rider has a bow. And this probably evokes the Parthians. They were skilled archers, and they threatened the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. And by this time, the time of the text, they had already defeated the Roman armies twice. And those in the eastern part of the empire, that is where these churches in Asia Minor are, the eastern part of the empire. 
They're reminded here that the celebrated, the esteemed Roman peace, the Pax Romana, was not unable to be broken. It was not inviolable. It was not eternal. It was being threatened, as John wrote. And this military lust ignites, and it brings in its wake the other three members, the other three horses in this terrible cavalry, violence, famine, and death. And so in verse 3, the Lamb opens the second seal. Out comes a fiery red horse. The red horse is the horse of bloodshed. So the Roman peace, maintained by force, by the sword, considered the source of Roman prosperity, here it breaks down. It's reversed. Peace is taken. Civil strife ensues. People slay one another. And so, this human weaponry of death, we ought to think this way. John is trying to get us to restructure the way we think about these things. The human weaponry of death is the historical manifestation of the large sword, which the end of verse 4 says was given to the red horse. Given again. The, 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 the rider of the red horse has a large sword. And that large sword in our day is mechanized warfare, nuclear warfare, biochemical warfare. In verse 5, the third seal is broken again by the lamb. The third living creature summons the third horse, a black horse, which symbolizes famine. War, bloodshed, famine. These are the things that mark the human condition. Winston Churchill said, war is the history of the human race. So the rider on this horse has a pair of scales for measuring grain. And then John hears a voice. And the voice says, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. This is a description of the economic hardship, the intensity of the famine. Rome's greed and their exploitation, they fall with particular cruelty on the heads of the poor and on the heads of the working class. A day's pay, the voice says, could buy a single quart of wheat or perhaps enough barley to feed a small family of three. It's a picture of the scarcity and the rationing and the exorbitant prices that follow in the train of war, where it becomes hard just to get your basic subsistence. And the prices here are 8 to 16 times higher than the normal prices for these goods. And then at the end of verse 6, there's this strange, curious voice. It's a command from the throne room, and it says, Do not damage the oil, and the wine. This indicates a couple things. It indicates that while the famine is severe, it's not total. Remember, these are partial judgments. Judgment at this point is limited. And while these 
maybe more luxury items. They're generally available and they were used by all people, common people included, oil and wine. There is probably here a reference to a local edict of the emperor Domitian. Most likely the emperor when this text was written. In 92 AD, Domitian orders half the vineyards and half the orchards in Asia Minor, where the churches are, to be cut down so that they could increase grain production. And there was a revolt against this order, and the order was eventually rescinded by the emperor. So if that's what's in view here, then the word, do not harm the oil and the wine, that is being spoken directly to the emperor himself. It tells him what not to do in the midst of a grain famine. The fourth seal, and the fourth seal summarizes the other three. It brings forth a horse of a pale and a ghostly, death-like color. Death is the rider's name. Behind it is Hades, the abode of the dead, gathering up the corpses in the wake of the judgments. So it's a picture of death going forth, creating an array of victims, and Hades coming behind and soaking them up. We've already seen in chapter 1 that the risen Christ has the keys of death and Hades. And here, by that same Christ, death and Hades are given limited authority to do their gruesome work. The text says they're given authority over a fourth of the earth, one-fourth of the earth, to kill by the sword and famine, both of which we've already seen, and to them is added by plagues and the wild beasts of the earth. This is standard Old Testament covenant cursing language. Christ's sovereignty, the keys of hell and death, extends then from greedy, bloodthirsty rulers to pestilence-causing bacteria, to plagues. In one, a generation or so after this text, in 160-something A.D., anywhere from a quarter to a third of the Roman Empire died of pestilence. It was a continual terror from which all the vaunted Roman power was helpless to stay it. And in the end, you have wild beasts, the text says, who are going to prey on the corpses of the fallen. That's the four horsemen. It's grim. But it's a general overview of the way history is seen from the throne. So the second point here is the martyrs. They're in the fifth seal. This seal is of monumental importance to the whole book. Here the vision shifts from earth back to heaven. And in verse 9, the Lamb opens the fifth seal. John sees under the altar the souls, he says, of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. A sort of a side literary note. In the Old Testament, there are two altars. There's an altar of sacrifice where the animal is slain and its blood is poured out. 
And then there's an altar of incense where some of that blood would be applied on the Day of Atonement and that second altar would incense the Holy of Holies. John has literally combined those two altars into one altar. That's what he's doing here. This heavenly altar is the altar where the martyrs have been slain as holy sacrifices and their blood has been poured out. And it will be seen later as the altar from which incense, symbolic of the prayers of the saints, also arises. So, John looks, and under this altar he sees the souls of those who've been slain, even as the lamb they follow had been slain. Now, it's important to get this. At this point, the book has mentioned one, exactly one martyr, Antipas, in chapter 2 at the church of Pergamum. James and Stephen have been killed in Jerusalem. And Nero had killed numerous Christians in the 60s, the A.D. 60s, in Rome by crucifixion or burning, or wild dogs. But John sees a coming flood of martyrs from the whole church. And this vision was to be horrifically fulfilled in the next two centuries of the church's life. They were slain, the text says, for the word of God, for the gospel, for the fidelity, for their witness to it. Again, the the word for witness is martyr. And here to be a witness is to die for Jesus Christ. To confess Jesus is Lord is to commit political treason against the empire. And these martyrs, which John sees under the altar, in verse 10, they cry out with a loud voice to the one who, contrary to the emperor, is the sovereign Lord. And they appeal to his reputation. God's reputation. They appeal to God's justice and his integrity, and they call him holy and true. And they ask a simple question, and it is the question, it's a passionate cry, it is the question of the suffering, witness-bearing people of God. How long? How long? History is long for these martyrs. Sovereign Lord, before you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. You want to know what they're praying in heaven? That's what they're praying. This is not a vindictive cry for personal revenge. It's an appeal to God's nature as holy and true. Is he just? If he is just, then the Christians slaughtered by Stalin are going to have to be publicly vindicated. Is he just? The martyrs under the altar in heaven affirm that he is. And therefore it is not a question of if, but of when, of how long, until their witness is vindicated. This is what they pray in heaven. Love, God is love, cannot turn a blind eye to injustice. And the God of mercy can never be the God of indifference. And thus the martyrdom of the saints 
the incense of their prayers becomes the instrument of just judgment, of justice in the earth. So they ask this question, how long? And they're given an initial answer in verse 11. They're given a white robe. It's a sign of victory. They appear throughout the book in white robes. And the white robe means God has annulled the guilty verdict against them. Just as he did for the slain lamb in the resurrection, overturning the Sanhedrin's guilty verdict, so he does for the martyrs, and so he shall do for the martyrs. And they're told to rest in assurance for a little while longer. How much longer? That's the question. How long? And here's the answer. Until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. History is marked out from heaven by the blood of the martyrs. Precious is their death in the eyes of the Lord. And yet the final vindication for these martyrs is not going to come until the very last martyr has died. This is why praying for the kingdom to come means praying for the vindication of these martyrs. So this brings us to the third point, the earthquake. The sixth seal. This seal is the final answer. To the martyr's cry of how long? This is the time in the sixth seal when their vindication will, will occur. And so you get this language in verses 12 through 17. It is used of historical judgments upon the nations. It's used by Jesus himself of the judgment of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But here... It must refer to the final judgment. Verses 12 through 17 are the divine judging and avenging by the sovereign Lord, holy and true, of the blood of all, not just the martyrs till 70 AD, all the martyrs who will be slain for the faith. So the sixth seal is open and you get this cosmic earthquake. It shakes heaven and earth. The old creation is being judged in preparation for the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what's happening here. Remember, we said, the seals run you from the present right up to the end. And then they back off. And that's what you see right here in chapter 6. The rest of this language is standard language. For the coming day of the Lord, the sun turns black, the moon is bloodied, the stars fall from the sky... In verse 14, it says the sky vanishes like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and every island is removed from its place. At the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, there's this great white throne judgment. And we are told there that before the presence of the one seated on the throne, this is the final judgment, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Again, that clearly links this passage to the final judgment. And then verse 15 continues. It's seven classes of men in verse 15, representing all people. They're named. The kings of the earth, princes, 
generals, rich, the mighty, that's five. And then to place everything beyond that, the text says everyone, slave or free. In this company are all the murderers, the persecutors of the martyrs, and all who oppose the Lamb. At this point, there's no place to hide. There's no escape. Heaven and earth flee away. So in terror, terror, you know, is a great equalizer of the rich and the poor, of the mighty and the powerful. Here John draws on this language from Isaiah 2. They hide themselves in caves and among rocks and in the mountains. And in desperation, rather than face the wrath of God, they call for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. The text says to hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The lion, as we saw last week, has become a lamb. And this wrath is the wrath of the slain lamb. Which, by the way, makes it all the more dreadful and all the more terrifying. The anger of pure love is much worse than the anger of an enemy or a tyrant. And the wrath of the Lamb is much more dreadful than the wrath of any empire. This wrath is the utter rejection by love incarnate of all that violates that love. And thus their question in verse 17 is, the great day of their wrath, God's wrath and the Lamb's wrath has come. And who can stand? The martyrs have asked the question, how long until you avenge our blood? The answer to it has now come. And it provokes a second question from the world, who can stand on this day? And to that answer, we'll turn in chapter 7. But for now, I want you to note, but not only note, embrace this great inversion of perspective on history that these questions present. It appeared then, it has often appeared since, that the church's witness has gone for naught. That the deaths of the faithful have been meaningless. I mean, what, what do the Christians displaced and exiled and slaughtered in Syria and Iraq have to show for it? It appears that the empires march on unhindered and unmolested. The whole book, but especially here, is trying to get you to see differently. And you can only do that if you re-narrate the history to yourself, which is a large part of what the whole book's about. These devastating yet partial woes, the woes of the first four seals, they all issue from the Lamb in His glorious court. And surely part of the message here is this. This real historical world This burning ground is still your father's world. And the empires will eventually collapse and fall. Let me put this differently. 
these seals are being poured out in the earth. They're being opened, and these horses are riding forth. Have, did, have you seen any of them? Have you, have, have you noticed any seals or trumpets or bowls of wrath poured out in the earth? Or are we just assimilating the evening news like everybody else does? The earth is full of these seals. It's been full of it in every generation and will be full of it to the end. In one sense, that is what human history is. Seals, trumpets, bowls of wrath poured out from the Lamb's throne in anticipation of the day when he vindicates his martyrs. So all of our afflictions and suffering, appearances to the contrary, are seen and remembered. That's what John is telling the Christians in Asia Minor. It's not much more complicated than that. He's doing it in a very poetic, symbolic way. But he's saying to the church on the ground, your afflictions, your suffering, your friend Antipas who was killed, your other friends who are being jailed, the other believers who suffer with you under the Roman boot, they are remembered and they shall be vindicated. And so John is saying to the churches, like the martyrs, you must not be content with appearances. You cannot allow the networks to narrate history to you. You cannot allow the culture to narrate history to you. The Lamb tells the story. And so if we're not content with appearances, then John is saying, then cry out to the Sovereign Lord, holy and true, for His kingdom to come. All prayer is oriented toward this prayer of the martyrs under the altar. That's where we're praying, toward that day. But now we're in between. We're in between these terrible partial convulsions in history and that final coming earthquake. And in between, John is saying, you need to be like the martyrs. You may not be called to die, but you are called to bear faithful witness in the face of hostility to the Word of God. For you too are a living sacrifice. And you are offered on the heavenly altar. And your life and your prayers are incense. And your vindication is sure. Amen.